This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. CanDo is navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots. I'm James Heal and I'm joined today by Katie Pauls and Stephen Bush of the Financial Times. Now today the big thing in Parliament is the illegal migration bill. The House of Lords has been debating it for three hours this morning. They've now adjourned and they're debating it the rest of the afternoon. And I suppose the highlight would probably be Justin Welby's speech attacking the bill, but saying that he wouldn't vote for the Paddock Amendment, which would throw the whole bill out wholesale. Instead, he's going to be putting down amendments at committee stage. This bill has no sense at all of the long term and of the global nature of the challenge that the world faces. It ignores the reality that migration must be engaged with at source as well as in the channel, as if we as a country were unrelated to the rest of the world. Now, Katie, really, what were the government expecting about this bill and are they thinking it's going to be changed substantively for the third reading? So I think this was always seen as a really tricky stage for the bill. You had a situation by which when uh, the government was first devising the bill, I think as we've spoken about previously on the podcast, there was a sense that the bill will show who's on whose side. And when you, uh, this is before it was published, you say, well, what do you mean by that? Who who are you going to show up in your minds? And it was very much, you know, certain groups but peers kept coming up so will the house of lords uh, refuse to play ball will the house of lords really obstruct this um you've had robert jenrick the immigration minister um urging peers to back the legislation ultimately saying the bill is the only way to stop people smugglers so trying to appeal to some of these arguments and as you say the archbishop of canterbury a pretty regular critic of the government i think it's fair to say saying that it is a morally unacceptable policy the government trying to make the case that people smuggling is a morally unacceptable business and how are you going to crack down on that so I think there is an effort to yes there is some playing of the politics on both sides but it's not a kind of rhetoric of get back in your box really offensive to the to the Lord's approach instead uh, you have a situation by which I think they are trying to talk peers down to, to avoid this we could end up of course in a ping pong scenario and um, depending on the, the various amendments that pass the fact this bill has gone through at such a fast track note does mean there's probably work to do on the legislation and um, you know that there's unhappiness in, amongst MPs too the fact that Theresa May sat in the upper chamber today and um, watching on you know shaking her head when the government were talking about the need for the bill so there's clearly a lot of unhappiness here I think the question is do we end up in a situation where the bill is amended to such an extent it no longer serves either side the government want it to be uh, in a certain form because they think that's how we'll give them the legal power when it comes to some of these judgments it could be the case that you have amendments added, which means it is, it's all the government have to adapt it, which is, it, it no longer renders the purpose for which it was, it was designed yeah, Stephen, simply put, will this bill work? No. Uh, yeah, look, it, one of the... I think it's really important to zoom out and reflect on actually how difficult the task the government has set itself for, right? Which is no country in the world, right? North Korea cannot prevent illegal movement out of it. And the UK is setting itself the task of preventing illegal movement into it. Now, there are a couple of reasons why this is a... A bold tactic. One is like, look, okay, I'm not saying any of us right now could swim the channel, but 
in the same way any of us right now couldn't run a, the London Marathon, but if we put our backs into it, we could, right? We are not talking about a particularly difficult border. And ultimately, the thing which drives a lot of this stuff is outside the government's control. The next big bulge of people seeking to come to the United Kingdom will be Sudanese refugees fleeing the conflict in Sudan, um, who have family ties in the United Kingdom, who don't have a legal route or have been denied by a legal route, who know that we have a fairly loose labour market, um, who will, some of whom will want to come here for a better life, right? And seeing as Rishi Sunak cannot prevent a Sudanese general going to war with another Sudanese general, you know, he can't prevent, for instance, um, Pakistan erupting into potential political upheaval over the arrest of Imran Khan, right? These are, these are not things within his control. Um, and we've already seen that, you know, with the last wave of powers to come in, the number of people arriving via small boats in particular has not gone down. So... I don't think it's likely to fix the policy problem. The question is, is does having a pretty draconian bit of legislation on the statute book fix the political problem? Like, does it give a Tory MP and you talk, you know, you know, you speak to three Conservative MPs about their mailbag. Two of them will tell you that they're inundated with emails about small boats. And the third will tell you that they're inundated with emails about Geronimo the alpaca, right? Like, does this give those Conservative MPs something, yeah, a kind of a shield politically? I think in some ways, um, and this is why Katie's point is exactly right, the thing is what we don't know is, does this bill get to a point where the government can go, well, we could have stopped this if it weren't for those pesky liberals in the House of Lords? Does it get to a point where it's so unrecognisable no one can really claim a victory? Or do they have what I think in some ways is actually probably the worst of all possible worlds, which is the bill ends up on the statute book and the problem doesn't go away? Because basically, the, you can be a country people illegally migrate into or one country people illegally migrate out of, but the, them's your choices, really. Um, Katie, in his answer there, Stephen mentions about the UK's labour market. One of the arguments in the House of Lords earlier today was perhaps uh, from the Labour side was that under New Labour, they considered having ID cards because identity cards is the reason why you can stop having people working in the UK who've come here illegally from working here uh, and getting around that black market argument. I mean, do you think there's a sense perhaps that given, as Stephen says, the high likelihood of this not working in the same way the government wants it to have, there'll be further measures such as identity cards or the ECHR issue again raising its head? I mean, I think identity cards uh, are a very divisive measure in the Tory party. And therefore, if you have, yes, a majority in the region of 80, but also a pretty divided party and a prime minister who's made his whole, uh, you know, at least a large part of his job trying to not have um, division where you can avoid it. I think it's quite unlikely you would see ID cards come in. I think when it comes to the ECHR, that is something which will build ahead of the election as to whether there is something on it in the Tory manifesto. Um, the pressure on the right will grow. I think whether or not that actually grows to a point where number 10 have to do something about it rests on two things. The first being, can there be success? I think the jury is out on whether the bill is going to do what the government wants it to do still. Um, but the bill is supposed to work alongside various other schemes. It's not the silver bullet to stopping the boats. The government is trying a range of different things. Albania, if you think about that agreement, they're trying the Rwanda scheme if they can actually get a flight up. I think this bill is supposed to help with that if it does become law, but you could get the Rwanda scheme up beforehand. So, is it the case that Rishi Sunak can point to at least some kind of progress 
in the next year that suggests that they are doing things on stopping the boats. Um, in which case, I think you can make the argument that you don't need to go all the way of leaving the ECHR. And partly this bill is supposed to be saying, we don't need to do all of that. We can carve out these things. But of course, then you have people pushing it further. But secondly, where else are voters on the right going to go? And I think that's why the local elections are quite interesting, because you've had the Tories lose votes in most directions, Labour, Lib Dem, Green Party, Independent, but not to the Reform Party. The Reform Party effectively won six, six council seats. All in uh, Derbyshire. Yeah, and they fielded you know just under 500 councillors. So that is a situation by which I think it's harder right now for the right of the party. If you think about, you know, I previously wrote about as to others, Reform Watch, which, you know, these Tory MPs they thought were, you know, so angry about boats they could jump off and join Richard Tice's party. Now... It does not look particularly good if you're a Tory MP at the moment in terms of you'll see in lots of seats around the country, including the Red Wall. But if I was a Tory MP in a Red Wall seat who wanted to be re-elected at the next election, I would still look at those local election results and think I'm better with the Tory party than in reform. Stephen, I mean, that goes on to the next election. The key, the key question that's been sort of dominating in the last few days post those local election results has been the coalition question and uh, sort of packed post next election. What extent do you think there is a chance that Keir Starmer and David could get in some kind of agreement after the next election? I mean, I, I think it's quite likely for lots of reasons. Right, so broadly speaking, if um, if the future plays out like the past, and as a Tweedy historian, I generally think the future does tend to play out a lot like the past. No shame in that. Then we would expect that we'll end up somewhere in the region of Labour 300 seats to Labour sort of maybe 340 seats. So even in that scenario where Labour is getting a majority, you've got to ask yourself, you're Keir Starmer, would you rather be doing business with John McDonnell or Ed Davey? Right? Uh, yeah. And, and I, I, don't, I don't think it's that likely that Labour's going to do sufficiently well that they are... So although, you know, as a very good piece in The Spectator by Katie uh, recently detailed, although... Keir Starmer has been very ruthless in his control of who's being selected in uh, marginal and vacant seats for the Labour Party, so it's going to be a very loyalist parliamentary party. The, thing, the thing, things we can say with a fairly high degree of confidence about the local elections are the Conservatives are unlikely to remain in office, the Labour Party is very likely to take office, but is unlikely to do so in a way where they have fully got out from under their left flank. So whatever happens, whether it's Labour minority government in official alliance with the Liberal Democrats or a Labour majority government, but where, well, I mean, they already have informal back-channel conversations between Labour and the Liberal Democrat leaderships all the time. But I think if Labour were to get, say, 330 seats, uh, I think even though they would have a majority, you can expect that Ed Davey or his chief of staff or, you know, M yeah, Liberal Democrat MPs who are, you know, both geographically and politically proximate to him, like Sarah Olney, will probably be spending quite a lot of time going in and out of a Keir Starmer Downing Street. So I think basically, regardless of the result, we're going to get some type of cooperation between those two parties. Yeah, and I think one option for Labour, if they don't form a coalition, and of course, you have Keir Starmer refusing, you know, ultimately choosing to rule out a coalition with the SNP but refusing to say anything on the Lib Dems so you, you just need to join the dots there but the other option is you know if Labour were to form a minority government you could say an election could follow quite soon after that potentially but I, I think there's quite a lot of optimism um, among some Labour figures I was speaking to that you could work that situation to your advantage you know Keir Starmer could ultimately have a very popular King's speech 
budget, if you think about some of the things where you could get agreement on without being in a formal agreement, um, if you think, for example, about you know, building 100,000 council homes or something like that, that's something that's being, you know, that you could put into that, which would get buy-in from different parties. And you could almost use it as the taster of what a Labour government does before you get there, um, which is definitely you know, like a, a conversation I've had I think some people are having in, in that scenario. So I think the Labour coalition, clearly it's something which which could happen, but also a Labour minority government, I don't think is as hopeless a situation as perhaps the Tories would want to paint it. I mean, it could look very chaotic for sure, but I also think, you know, because Labour have been out of power for so long, most scenarios are being wargamed. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Stephen. And thank you for listening to Coffee House Shots.